Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, and my guest today is Craig Mitchell-Smith, who is an artist extraordinaire who's done everything under the sun but has settled into the glass arena so welcome to tia time craig thank you it's so nice to see and hear you so i can't believe the transformation i've seen over years of knowing you the stories you told me about starting out in hgtv and the faux painting and i remember when we lived in lansing at the same time and the, they tore down the Capitol building and you took pieces of the Capitol building and made moldings. And <laughs> I stole all... <laughs> pieces of the Capitol building and made molds of them. You know, well, they just... were in the dumpster. But... All, all these kinds of things. And it's like now you're like making glass sculptures all over the place and in, in gardens and in Epcot Center and at Michigan State University and in... I think Kentucky and Maryland or St. Louis. I've been all over. (laughs) I'm the luckiest guy I've ever met. It's been a blur. I'll tell you that my story was I'm 57. I never considered myself an artist until I was 42. People say, what did you do before then? I said, mostly floundered. Here's what happened to you. When we met, gosh, that was like 1993. I had just come back from eight years in Oregon and I'd owned a flower shop there that failed. And I'd done theatrical set design that doesn't pay the bills. And I'd done carpentry to pay the bills. I'd done so many different things, but nothing captured my interest for too long. I was just either bored or bad at things in the real world. Anyway, I'd come back to Michigan and my partner and I had bought my family home, century modern, cool house, and spent several years restoring it. And then it was getting really beautiful. I love the house. And then what happened to start my glass career was a friend of mine had uh, purchased a class, Delphi Glass, learning how to make coasters and small things with a glass. And then she realized she'd scheduled a vacation at the same time. And she said, Craig, would you like that? class. I've already paid for it. It's non-refundable. I said, sure, I'd love to. So I took this class and I was just hooked. I was just smitten with things you can do with glass. Uh, But pretty quickly, I was annoying my teacher because I kept saying, can't it be fluid? Can't it be dynamic? Like it's alive. Uh, And why on earth would a coaster be glass? You're just making a round problem a square problem. And (laughs) she was so annoyed with me. I remember she uh, said to me once, why don't you get your own damn kiln and find out? And then just about that same week, I was in contact with HGTV, and they were going to do one of those six-minute segments on my kitchen and garden on the house we'd restored. And so I'm sending pictures back and forth to Hollywood, California, 
And uh, she says, what's that thing in photograph number 14? I said, what? And what it was, was a cobalt blue glass gazing ball that had been my grandmother's. And uh, I'd had it for years since she passed. And a tree branch fell on it and broke it into shards. And I couldn't throw grandma away. So I glued it back together in a new shape, uh, just these kind of swirls that intersected. And anyway, that's what she saw in this photograph, this woman in Hollywood. And she said, what's that thing in the corner? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess it's a sculpture. And she said, do you have anything more like that? And I said, no, but I'm thinking about getting my own damn kiln and making my own glass that would feel like that for my garden, only much bigger. And she said, oh, that sounds great. We'll fly out a crew to film it in nine weeks. And I thought, you can make this real if you want. So when my partner got home for dinner, I made a really nice dinner and said, oh, by the way, I've got a Hollywood film crew coming in nine weeks. Can I borrow $5,000 for a kiln so I can make some stuff? I said I would. And he, uh, he said, okay. And I did. I just bought a kiln and glass and I started making stuff. And because I was untrained, I drew from my background. I used to be a painter. So I thought like a painter. So I started cutting glass in the shape of brush strokes and painting with shards of glass, not knowing that no one had done this before. Mm-hmm. And I just started making stuff that just flowed out of me. I already knew how to do something that nobody had done before. And I was just in my element, just making stuff. And sure enough, they you know flew out a crew and they spent a day filming. And all I was thinking was, this is really fun. I'll get on TV and my friends can watch. And, uh, <laughs> and then when it finally hit the air, I immediately got a call from a Chicago gallery saying, who represents you? Uh, do you ship? And can we meet on Tuesday? I had no idea that most artists were years and years to get any kind of gallery representation. And I was just on a roll making making stuff and having some success with it. And I did a museum show, like, mm. what, 18 months uh, into making glass. I was, uh, and I didn't know anything about the art world. Uh, so I uh, did this large scale piece called Faggot, a, a politically motivated piece. And I'm, I'm setting it up and I'm so naive. Uh, I didn't know who the other artists were. And it was, oh gosh, uh, Jeff Borglund, Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat, big name hitters. And I didn't know who any of them were. And I said, uh, will the other artists be there? And she said, they're mostly dead, sir. And uh, I thought, oh, I might be on something. So anyway, I just started making more and more stuff. And then the economy tanked in 2008 and the arts just died. And I thought, okay, that was nice. I guess I'll go back to carpentry or floral or something. And uh, so I started making uh, more stuff. And next thing I know, I got a, a, a grant from the Arts Council of Greater Lansing. Mm-hmm. And it enabled me to go wholesale. And my, the idea was that I would have to make something that benefited my community. And there was a garden in Lansing called Cooley Gardens, an urban garden. And I used to volunteer time and weed there. And I approached them and I said, how about I do a, an exhibition of sculptures in the garden? And if anything sells, I'll give you 25% of sales. And they said, sure, that sounds great. So they did. And I sold everything. It was just <laughs> this knockout show. And it was do or die for me. I thought, well, if this works, I could continue this career. And if it doesn't, I'll just be you know, a carpenter or fail at something else. Uh, anyway, so it was a big hit. And uh, then the Meridian Mall called me. This is a big 150-store shopping mall. Right, still and, in uh, Okemos, right? In Okemos, in Okemos, yeah. Michigan. And uh, anyway, they called me in and I was thinking, oh boy, maybe you know, they want to buy something shiny for the mall. And instead, they brought me down to this gorgeous 
4,800 square foot and Taylor store. And they said, want it? And I'm like, oh, there's no way I could afford a place like this. I know what malls cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, my original deal was $100 a month and 10% of sales and utilities. And uh, turned out, I found out later that the mall was failing. And the, one of the big anchor tenants told them that if they didn't fill these empty stores, that they were going to pull out. So I just was in the right place at the right time and got a sweetheart deal. And so I gathered as much stuff as I could. And suddenly I went from my basement to having the largest single artist gallery in Michigan. Yeah, I remember. I was there for the opening playing for you. Oh, remember you played. That? You played. Yes. <laughs> yeah. With only Kelly. It was amazing. Yep. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, we had a lot of parties. We had a lot of parties. Yeah. I've, I haven't set foot in a mall since. <laughs> So spent four years in the mall. Then the Disney thing happened. Okay. Uh, I've just had so many freaky good things uh, uh, happen my way. I developed these poppies, these glass, brilliant, orangey red poppies that just made me happy and that makes other people happy. Anyway, we developed these and I'd done another garden show. So I'd done a show at Dow Gardens in, in Michigan. And so then we'd had some publicity materials. I had enough money to print some stuff. And I said, oh, let's send them to these different gardens. I said, send one to head of horticulture, Epcot Center, you know, Orlando, Florida. That's all we had. And it landed on the head of the, landed on the desk of the head of horticulture the day that they were scheduled to have a meeting about a publicity garden for the movie, The Great and Powerful Oz. Hmm. And they wanted poppies for this garden. And they were trying to figure out, poppies don't grow in Southern Florida. So they were trying to figure out, could they chill the soil for them to grow and all these different permutations. And they didn't like anything artificial that they'd seen. And on the same day that they were holding this meeting, my brochure with the poppies on the cover landed on their desk. Wow. And so she walked in with this thing and she says, oh, what about this guy? And sure enough, so Disney contacted me and they leased a field of these glass poppies and something like, I don't know, like a, I think it's a quarter of a million people saw them over the three months that they were displayed. Mm. And that was an interesting experience, which I'll never do again. Uh, I'm just <laughs> not cut out to smile for 10 hours a day. <laughs> How did you go about making a field of poppies that large? Was it just poppies for hours and hours at your oh, yeah. at your kiln? Yep, and I had I only had like nine weeks to do it. I seem to have this curse of like being given nine weeks to do the impossible. But I was making it happen. Just cranked it out, and that's when I hired two more people. So I was I was an employer, and the economy was failing, and I was doing everything I could to give people jobs in the arts when there was you know absolutely nothing going on mm-hmm. uh, in the arts. I've always done really well in bad times because what I do makes people happy. So in, in really hard times, I seem to be more in demand. I'm really super busy now working on another show that'll open in the spring. Fantastic. What's the show about this time? This one will be my first show in Michigan for 10 years. I've been all over the place, but I haven't uh, done a show in Michigan. So Dow Gardens is bringing me back and I'm doing 30 sculptures. The tallest one is 22 feet. So these are some of the largest, they're certainly the largest fused glass sculptures made. 
and they're all mostly floral design. So we're, we just worked up a, a giant hydrangea that's nine foot tall. Oh, uh, wow. These are just, we're doing this huge scale work and I'm welding all my own metal. So we're making geraniums and orchids and 14 foot tall hollyhocks and a thousand monarch butterflies for one. That's beautiful. And that opens on May 29th in Dow Gardens in Midland, Michigan, and runs through October 15th. Then on September 1st, the show will be lit at night. So we're, I'm learning things I never thought I would, like color temperature, and I'm having to figure out the exact way to light these pieces to make them look most magic. All, and, all and the nature, attendance will be 100,000. All these nature-based things. Now, you were working in... in flowers way before you started to do glass now what brought you to the flowers in the first place so i'm trying to understand maybe you don't understand either but what how you got from did you always doodle did you always paint did you always Always. draw i was always creative i always had to make something with my hands i've always been someone who had to putz with my hands and make stuff and i remember my dad was an attorney and he wanted me to become an attorney i would have made a lousy uh, attorney <laughs> I but i remember he's <laughs> i do not have a poker face uh but he said that if you don't get an education you might end up working with your hands and i was well, <laughs> like yeah <laughs> dude, the goal is i like making things uh-huh. uh, and always have ever since i was a little kid i was a gardener since i was a child mm. i remember one of my first memories is stealing tulip heads and giving them to my mother and one of my earliest memories is just being dazzled by color. I remember scooting under the Christmas tree and crossing my eyes and looking up at all the colored lights and mm-hmm. thinking that was just a, like a drug to me. I remember being a little boy and I, my mother had a bottle of Noxzema, which came in this cobalt blue glass jar. Okay. And I just wanted the light to come through that jar. So I, I scooped out the stinking stuff on the inside and dumped it in her clothes hamper. Oh. Uh, and, I was walking, <laughs> and I was walking around just seeing what the world would look like cobalt blue. And uh-huh. uh, it's still a thrill for me. I get to work with liquid color. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm painting in liquid color in three dimensions. No, you are. I, I just, I still, I just love what I get to do. You had to start teaching yourself this glass thing in this nine week period. How did you go about doing that? Fearlessly. I just <laughs> dove in and I'm so glad I hadn't had any training because I started doing stuff that the glass world thought was not possible. And because I didn't know that, I could just experiment and and see what worked and see what didn't. And I had a theater background doing a lot of sets. So I knew how to make things look good on camera, not necessarily up close. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it did look great on camera. And then it took years to refine it, the techniques we developed, so that now they look good far away and up close. (laughs) It works. Uh, And teaching, I love to teach what I do. COVID has screwed up everything. Uh, But typically, I've been spending 100 days a year in hotels just teaching. So I've got a gig that I've been doing every year in England, two different facilities in California, Florida. I'm working on a couple of new ones. We spent a month in Sri Lanka. The strangest, I know this was so weird. I did the show at Epcot Center. And then we got an email that said, Sri Lankan businessman wants to partner with you. Delete. And we kept getting this. And who thinks that's real? Then they eventually called the studio. And it was this Sri Lankan billionaire who said he saw the spirit 
of my work when he was at Epcot Center on vacation with his daughters and wanted to know if I would teach how I make glass for decor items that would be in his, he owns 37 hotels and 150 restaurants. Ah, oh, so I'm there. Gonna, there, you know, there you go. So anyway, I said, yeah, I teach classes. He's no, we'd want you to come here. And I said, yeah, I use really specialized equipment. These kilns are five to $10,000 a piece. And um, he said, if you would design a studio, we would build it for you. Wow. And so I thought this can't be real, but it, you know, it was. So I designed a studio in an abandoned casino that he owns in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And my crew and I spent a month making stuff uh, for his home and teaching people. So I was mic'd the entire time and they recorded everything and how I do my techniques. And it was just the, the most magical month of my life, just making stuff with, with people half a world away. Who knew? You know, this, this glass career has just expanded my life in a way I never, ever could have imagined. No. Who would believe that who was real? <laughs> I mean, who gets calls for this? And then we just got a call. I'm dealing with a guy now who's on the board of several art museums in Los Angeles. He's flying me out in February. I'm making a meeting with him and he's building a gin distillery in South Africa. And we had to come to South Africa with him. And he's talking about a massive chandelier that would be in this three-story entry of the uh, distillery that would be based on all the botanicals that they make the gin from. Wow. How cool is that? And I like gin. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you get to go to South Africa. And I get to go to South Africa. So this is this is pretty thrilling. I never dreamed if they let you in that a life point. like this. Yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be we're thinking it's gonna be a year out before everything really settles down again. Mm-hmm. But I what's a harder career than glass or than art? And it's the only thing I've done. It's paying the bills, you're able to build a company, you're able to hire people. Did you ever think yeah, we, of yourself as a an employer? been an employer since I was 24 years old because I owned a flower shop and I hated it. I'm a really lousy boss, but I figured out how to surround myself with people who don't need to be bossed around, who work as a team. So we are a team of like-minded people. I I tell people that my name is on the ship, but there's a lot of people rowing. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of hands uh, to do this. I'm the most disorganized person I know. So Jane Lederber has worked with me for 10 years and... uh, she says it's like walking a tornado, but, <laughs> but she keeps me organized and keeps the world working. And I have a couple of assistants who just uh, help keep me on track. I'm like a, a dog who sees a squirrel. I, it's so easy for me to get off track and say, oh, I'm going to do this. And I need people to say, all right, but only after you've done this and this. So Joan, who's my assistant, says that if I ever replace her, she said, don't hire anyone who hasn't had children because they won't know how to deal with you. <laughs> I can understand that. If you have an artistic mind, it does jump from idea to idea. And that's how the flow goes. You can't stop the flow when it's going. And it's hard to change course and, and suddenly just do something that you don't want to do when you've got this great idea. But that's the part. That's the difficult part is being a business with this. What I do is between teaching sales, gallery sales, and then these shows are, are, I lease them. 
So the gardens pay me to lease the work for a show. So I've had to develop enough business acumen to figure out how that all works that benefits them and me at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what happens after the lease is up? You have to get go and pack it all up again and then send yes. it to the next place or yes. And I typically it. book a yep. And I book a show at least two years in advance, sometimes more. So we've got stuff uh, planned out for we're up to we're booked out to twenty twenty four. Fantastic. And and I can't release what they're going to be, but I want to do just one big show every two years. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So do you have storage spaces large enough to deal with all these different projects that you've done? Yep. I rent a barn in a secret location uh, that's got a huge <laughs> amount of glass and stainless steel in it. And so I have to ensure uh, the, the, the contents are worth 10 times what the barn is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wow. Uh, take care of that. But because the studio here is 4,000 uh, square feet and I'm hoping to move. We purchased a house up north in Charlevoix and building out a studio there, that'll only be 2,500 square feet. So looking forward to retirement, I may not want to do these giant show-offy pieces and just, I may well just do things that are smaller scaled and easier on my body as I get older. Doing 22 foot tall pieces and falling off a 22 tall tall piece is different at 60 than at uh, 20. True. And that's what the assistants are for. Yes. (laughs) And I'm terrified of heights and everything I do seems to be way up in the air. (laughs) Okay. So do you actually see yourself retiring at any point at all? Because how do you retire if you'd like to work? Yeah, that'd be like retiring from breathing. I want to retire from being a business, but I don't want to ever retire from, from my work in glass. And I figured I'll teach for the rest of my life. I just, I, I love doing that, but I can see the day coming where I just don't want to do these giant exhausting shows that take a full year to produce. Sure. I understand that. And that, again, that might just be adding a few more people who do just the businessy business stuff. Yeah, I need grown-ups around. Yeah. (laughs) So you just have those people and you just say, this is how many I'm going to do. Figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And just say no to stuff. It's really hard. It's really hard. All those years of struggling when you, you know, couldn't pay the bills. It's really hard for me to say, oh, I don't need any more. Because you're just always remembering when it fell apart and you couldn't pay the mortgage. And so I I think those hard times always stick with you. Oh, they do. They do. And you can't be, you can never be too sure what's going to happen. So you always want to make sure you have a little extra coming in at all times. So I understand that completely. And so I'm trying to be an adult about all of this. And all I really want to do is make shiny things. (laughs) Are, are there things that you haven't done that you really want to do at some point? There's a couple of facilities I'm anxious of. So I've got to, some feelers out. There's a facility in Houston, Texas, that's 20 foot underground in a cistern. Mm. And I toured it when I was installing a couple of sculptures there, oh, two years ago. And I thought this would be an amazing venue. It's uh, pitch black. It's got one foot of water in the bottom that acts as a black mirror. Wow. Uh, and I just, and they're using it as an art venue now. And uh, some light shows have gone on in there. And I just thought that's where I need to be. So after this show is done and filmed, because the scale of the work would be appropriate for there, 
we'll be sending them uh, a package and maybe we'll bite the same way Disney did. That and I hate heat perfect. and it's always 64 degrees under there. So that would be perfect. So well, what is that? The 64 degrees? What do you mean? Well, it's the cistern underground. So it's, it's 20 feet underground. So it's always 64 degrees in there. So why is that perfect? Is that perfect for glass at 64 degrees? It's just perfect for me. I hate heat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate cranky above 74 degrees. Okay. Uh, I'm just not, I'm not built for it. That's why I'm the only person I know who moved to Portland, Oregon for the weather. Okay. Okay. So what is it? Scott's ancestry? <laughs> Irish. I'm Irish. a redhead. <laughs> We like it gray and gloomy and cool and rainy and green. <laughs> I see. So have you tried to go over to the, the Emerald Isle and do any work yet? I haven't yet. I've done England six times and, and absolutely love it. I love the British people. I love every moment that I've spent in England. And I was scheduled there for three weeks this October. And of course, COVID canceled right. that. COVID. Were there a lot of gardens that you worked on there or... The teaching, those are that was a gig. teaching, and so I was. I, you don't know what kind of impact you have, but those classes all sold out. I did not know that I had a reputation in England from glass people. So when the facility there contacted me, and I thought, Do you think you can fill those classes? And, and that's when she said, Oh, they're already full. And I, sometimes I teach here in the Lansing studio pre COVID. The last class I taught, I think, was last November here in the Lansing studio. And Joan, my assistant, handles all of the scheduling. I don't know who's coming to these classes. So I did, I, ma I maxed out at 12 people and I did three sets of classes and, and they all sold out. And I like not knowing who's coming to the classes. And so I never forget on the first one, you know, I was there to say hello to everybody when they arrived. And not one of them was from Michigan. I had uh, two from California, one from New York, two from Florida, one from Texas. People, And one lady came from Israel to take wow. a class with me. Wow. And that was so humbling to, to realize that there were people who knew me all over the world who were willing to fly to Lansing, Michigan to take a class. That was a, a moment I will never forget. Oh, I bet. Now, did they say how they heard about you in the first place? Was it Epcot? Or was uh, it some, no, just, just other just things? Main, mainly Facebook. I have uh, tens of thousands of people that follow me on Facebook. And because my work looks so different, that's the only technology I can handle. The website gets updated whenever I can find somebody who knows what they're doing. But Facebook, I know how to do on my phone. <laughs> so okay. that's how I can communicate <laughs> uh, visually with stuff. So that's, uh, and I had so many people that I didn't even know who were following my, my page. So what about Instagram? Now that's owned by Facebook too now. Yes. And I, yeah. And I, I post occasionally on Instagram, but it's never gotten me the communication that Facebook has. Facebook seems to be much more two-sided. Instagram is me just putting out images. Mm. People don't communicate with me through Instagram, but they certainly do through Facebook. Wow. Fantastic. Are there things in glass making that you haven't learned yet that you want to know more about? Oh, yeah, we're always, I think next is going to be casting. To do really thick pieces, you have to contain the glass. And so making what we're doing now is all of the pieces that I've made in the last couple of years are on single use plaster molds that I'm working with my fingers with wet plaster mm -hmm. uh, and making all of these designs. And then I'm face casting uh, the, the glass on it. 
a few years ago, I got so tired. Everything I became just a machine. I was making so many, I don't know how many thousands of poppies we made. And I just felt like I was repeating myself. And I got sick because I worked so hard. I didn't take a, a day off in 16 months and I was absolutely uh, exhausted. And I thought, you've got to reinvent yourself again and now come up with a way of making glass where everything is unique and one of a kind and slower. Mm -hmm. And so I developed a technique where I'm making my own plaster molds and they are destroyed in the firing. So you can't repeat yourself. And it mm -hmm. made me, I'm a hyper person. This made me slow down mm -hmm. and best thing I've done. So next I want to do big, thick cast pieces and the thicker the glass, the longer it has to anneal in the kiln. The thickest piece of glass ever cast was for the Los Alamos telescope It's 30 inches thick. And the annealing time was two and a half years years oh, wow. so you could make yeah i'm not going that thick but if you're making a, a like a 10 inch thick piece of glass it's in the kiln a month to slowly cool mm -hmm. and so i thought if i'm pushing my patience there are pieces that i would love to make that are massive and thick and would uh, strengthen my mold making skills so you make these pieces out of wax first, then you encase them in plaster of Paris, a special fortified plaster of Paris. Then you melt out the wax and then you can fill them with uh, pulverized or powdered glass and then make a single a one of a kind sculpture that takes a month at a kiln. And I have nine kilns, so I can do things like this. Yes, you can. And what about the height? So they don't have to be like 20 feet tall. <laughs> no, they're just, you know, Pieces for homes or hotels. I do a lot of, uh, for businesses. A lot of businesses buy statement pieces. And so I'm in a lot of lobbies across America. What about hospitals and things like that? Oh, I did. I did a, the biggest pieces I've ever done was for the Herbert Herman Cancer Center here in Lansing. It's made of 100 components of glass, uh, and it's over 40 feet long. And there was an open competition for this is the, the plum sculpture. It's filled with art. Hospitals have realized that art heals. And so they're filling themselves with, with artwork. And here's an interesting aside. If you're doing uh, artwork for a hospital, it must not be an, a color that comes out of a human body. So that's oh. why you will, so there's no red, no bilious green, no yellow. So that's why what, if you're in a hospital, what you're going to see are a lot of blues and aquas and turquoise and white and silver uh, and gray. So all, that's why you see all those colors uh, in hospitals. So anyway, meeting with the hospital people for the, the possibility of this piece, they asked me how I would uh, approach it. And I lost you know, my father to cancer and many friends. And so I looked at the space and I said, I would ask myself, what is the shape of hope? And I saw a giant spiral leading the eye up. Was it that said the eye must travel? And all of my pieces hopefully engage the eye. And there's something very optimistic about tracing a line that goes up. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make a, a, a shape that reflected what I thought hope would feel like. And mm. that's why they gave me the commission was because of, because of that feel. That's fantastic. I love that. I really love that. So what does hope feel like? <laughs> uh, up, yeah, uplifting. And something that, le something that leads you up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I made, the, I made a, a physical shape that felt like hope to me. 
that's a statement for sure. Is that what you want to leave the world with your art? Is that when yeah. you're doing your artwork, is that what you're thinking about? Absolutely. I'm trying to affect moods. I learned early on in life that I cannot change the world. I cannot fix the world, but I can make it look better. And like in my background in theater, I realized for those two hours that you've got someone paying attention to what's on stage, you affect them for that period of time. And some of it lingers like a ghost. So making these pieces that affect how people feel, what I'm trying to do is show people the beauty in nature. I just make it huge so they can't miss it. I make the colors louder than they are in nature so you can't miss it. One of my favorite pieces that I've done, I think, five times now is called Making a Wish. How many, you know, haven't we all as a kid pulled a dandelion and blown on the puff and made those seeds spread everywhere? So I've made one of those 22 feet tall. Hmm. So just the leaves are like four and a half foot long out of stainless steel at the base and then this tall trunk and then this just spray of stainless steel with with glass seed heads. And then there are like 40 additional seed heads that are cabled on very fine, almost invisible stainless steel hanging from trees hundreds of feet away. And the whole idea is that it uh, makes you remember do that. And one of my best memories as I did this piece for art prize in Grand Rapids and did well, but I will never forget a lady, an 80 year old lady turned a corner and she saw this piece and she just instinctively pursed her lips and blew and said, I haven't done that for 75 years. Oh, that's beautiful. So that's again, beautiful. it's that that's, and what I love about the whole thought of that is it's a secular prayer. Making a wish doesn't offend anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's the exact same energy as a prayer. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. putting out good intentions. I tell people, make wishes because some of them come true. Oh, yeah. If you don't make them, you'll never get the chance to. Never get You'll never know. You'll never make that effort to get towards or go towards that wish. So it could happen because you moved that direction. So So make a wish, everyone. Yeah. So while you're working on this and you're sweating and working and going, ah, oh, another poppy. <laughs> does, <laughs> does that still, does that energy get imbued in there anyway? Absolutely. And I've learned if I'm in a crappy mood, don't make glass. Mm-hmm. It's going to, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. If I watch the news, I can't make glass. I have a perfect excuse to be somewhat uninformed because if I pay attention to the world, man, everything I do would be black. <laughs> hear that yeah i haven't watched the news on a uh, regular basis for over 30 years good um, it's bad for you it just doesn't work <laughs> so. you know do what you can do to affect change but mm-hmm. man do not if i obsessed over uh, the gloom and doom of the world i sure would i'm trying to be the antidote yes. to what's out there and post-covid the show opens may 29th by Everybody is hoping that by May 29th, we'll be able to go back to the lives we used to live. And I think everybody's going to be ready for a party and be wanting to celebrate. So we've upped our game. The uglier the world gets, the more my commitment to making beauty is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That's, That's been my slogan for the whole time of this show is to make art, make art. People have constantly asked, what are we going to do? Especially because of COVID. I said, just keep making art. What has really changed? (laughs) You can still make music. Yeah. 
you still have to do the the art that you're here to do just to make the art so you just keep on keeping on gotta do it so where uh is the best place for people to find you online oh craigmitchellsmith.com okay easy enough easy so enough there's, there's my website and my facebook page again I, I update the facebook page regularly because i know how i'm an idiot with technology i will always be an idiot with technology <laughs> but i know how to do facebook on my phone and i can take a decent picture <laughs> and now you have assistants to help you which we're very yes. grateful for yeah. <laughs> oh i need young today. people i don't do the technology <laughs> thing no and I, this would never have happened without a delightful 23 year old who understands computers and things <laughs> Is there, what do you see as your legacy of your art? Like what happens to your art when you're gone? Have you made choices on that? Yes, but I don't want to go into that just yet. My legacy will be the techniques that I've shared with people. When I first started making glass, I was like other artists and thinking, oh, don't, I don't want anybody to know how I do this because they'll steal it. Guess what? They're going to steal it anyway. So you might as well charge them to learn. (laughs) <laughs> so then my resentment just evaporated because they paid me. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an easy fix. So <laughs> that I have changed how thousands of people make glass. Mm-hmm. I have what nothing is more meaningful to me than when glass artists tell me that I have inspired them to do something they never thought they could do. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I well, never lose my curiosity. Oh, no, you can't. Now, I know there's going to be somebody who's going to do something and you're going to look at it and go, wait a minute, how did you do that? And then have you gone to to find other artists to teach you things about? Oh, yeah. I've written many fan letters to other artists that I, whose work I admire. And I've had some wonderful conversations with people of, and shared and met many people through this amazing internet connected world. I was in Sri Lanka and a woman knocked on the door in Colombo, Sri Lanka, because she followed me in Facebook. She happened to be uh, in Colombo and tracked me down half a world uh, away. And uh, she was given permission from the, the gentleman who had hired me to participate in it for a day. Just the a magical connections. The, the legacy is really the connections you make. I don't have children. So what I'm leaving behind is a mood that I hope persists. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Craig, for being with us today. And, oh, I cannot and... tell you what a pleasure this was to reconnect with an old friend. I think I met you in 1993. It's Yeah, it's been a while. When the world opens up, come back. Say hi. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And oh, this is my pleasure. I'm so glad we were able to make this work. And all my best to you. Oh, thank you so much, Craig. You're welcome. Goodbye, bye, Tia. Thanks for being on Tia Time. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Ben Michigan or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed in the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time.
Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.